Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from which seven demons had gone out, Joanne, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Suzanne, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is God's word for his church. If you would pray with me. Dear Lord, we are so thankful again for this morning. Lord, I love snow, Lord. I praise you for that. Thank you for that yesterday. I know for some, Lord, it may have slowed them down a bit. It may have caused them not to be able to get out. Maybe they wanted to. They weren't able to do errands. But, Lord, I thank you for the white snow. Thank you for what it, it represents, Lord, that our sins have been cleansed white as snow. Lord, I praise you for that. I thank you for just fun and joyfulness in your creation, Lord, playing with my kids and others, playing with going sledding and doing things like that. Lord, thank, the joy that it brings to our hearts to play in your creation, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you so much that we get to be here this morning to open your word, to read your word, Lord, to learn from your word amongst other brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for those here who maybe have never put their faith in Christ. And this is, maybe they're new to the church. They kind of uh, came because someone invited them. Or maybe they, they saw the church and like, you know what, I really, I'd like to check that out. I wonder what's going on there, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them. Lord, I pray that they would feel welcome and loved here. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts, Lord, that your spirit, Lord, would convict them of their sins, that they would, uh, that they would repent of those sins and put their faith in the God and, and Savior who redeemed them from their sins. Lord, I pray for uh, St. Mark's United Church of Christ, Lord, who is going through a difficult time. Uh, Lord, they have a meeting uh, next week, their annual meeting, Lord, and some difficult decisions have to be made in regards to their future. And Lord, we pray for them. Lord, we, we pray for them. We've gotten to know them really well. Uh, some of us have gotten to know them extremely well. We've, we've, we've laughed together. Sometimes we've gotten angry together uh, and at times, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for mercy and grace. And we thank you, Lord, for their patience with us as well. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would um, give them wisdom. Lord, we know, Lord, that you're in control of all things. You're sovereign over all things, Lord. I pray, Lord, for our relationship with them, Lord, as we, uh, they, as we use this building, as we share this building, Lord. May ministry happen here. May that be the future of this place, that ministry would happen, that your name would be revealed, that your name would be proclaimed, that your name would be praised, that people would come to know Christ Jesus, their Lord and Savior, through this, at this place. Lord, we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. It's a very short passage, but there's a lot to talk about in regards to this particular passage. And, um, it, it, you know, I've been in church for a while, and I've been a pastor for, for several years, but um, I've been in the church for such a long time. I grew up in the church, and grew up in the Southern Baptist Church especially, um, and my dad was a deacon in the Southern Baptist Church, and I was the kid who wore kind of this to church, um, and uh, yeah, um, but again, like that was, I wasn't the only one, because I mean, I went to a traditional Southern Baptist church in Memphis, Tennessee, and so, um, which is kind of the hotbed of Southern Baptist churches, and I, being in the church for so long, I had never, ever, 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 I can't remember ever hearing a sermon talking about women, 
And I think there's this awkwardness in the Southern Baptist Church because, you know, there's those few passages in the Bible, uh, especially even 1 Timothy, and talking about women shouldn't speak and women should wear certain, uh, should cover their heads or, or not cover their heads. And there's different, different passages, and usually they're just not talked about, they're kind of ignored. But I think women, and knowing my mother who is really involved in the church and has been involved in women's ministry for, such, for so many years, and I look to her in a lot of ways as an example of what it looks like to be involved in the church, there is a sense of distance when it comes to the pastors of a local church and their encouragement to women. And I don't know what it is. I think it's probably traditions and culture over the years. But it's created this awkwardness where a lot of women in the church really just don't know how to fit in the church. They don't really know what to do. They don't really know, are they celebrated? Are they allowed to do anything? Are they supposed to just keep their mouths shut all the time? But we get this wonderful passage in Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3. And again, I've never heard a sermon preached on this particular passage, only on these three verses. But, you know, this is... Um, I want to talk a lot about women today, and when I've, in, an, in an introduction, I want to talk about women in missions. You don't know this, but women, like especially Lottie Moon, we, talk, we celebrated Lottie Moon and her giving in the Southern Baptist uh, Church, but Lottie Moon was an awesome woman. Like, there's some of the things she said. Like, I think some of the things she said today would be just as controversial today than when she said them in the turn of the century when she was a missionary in China, like, right after the Civil War. But let me read a few different things. Let me tell you a little bit of history about women and, and missions, especially in, in the United States. Um, this is in a book, a very good book on missions and the history of missions. Uh, talking about uh, kind of women in missions really started in America with Betsy Stockton in 1823. She was the first uh, woman to be a missionary. What's so interesting, she was actually a former slave. She was a black lady who went to Hawaii to be a missionary, and she was qualified to teach, and she actually started a school. In, right before the Civil War in 18, 1820s, 1830s. In 1860s, the women's ministry movement really took on, and, and, and unmarried women like Lottie Moon went overseas and showed the gospel with people. And it became such a thing, and it was a growing uh, movement by the 1900s, by the, kind of the turn of the 20th century. There was more women in missions than there were men. By large numbers as well, especially in China, where it would be like over 100 women were missionaries. There were only like 40 or 30 men that were missionaries in China. And that's kind of stayed consistent over the 20th century, where there's been more women in ministry when it comes to missions overseas than there are men in missions. Uh, another, uh, this is a quote from Helen Montgomery. She says, is it indeed a wonderful story? We began in weakness, we stand in power. In 1861, there was a single missionary in the field, talking about women. She was in Burma in 1909. There were 4,710 unmarried women in the field. So from 1861, there was one, and by 1909, there were 4,710 women on the field. It's remarkable. 1,948 of them were from the United States. In 1861, there was one organized women's society in our country. In 1910, there were 44 mission societies in the United States. Then the supporters numbered a few hundred. Today, there are at least 2 million women missionaries on the field. The amount contributed with 2,000 at that time. But last year, $4 million were raised by women's mission societies. The development on the field has been as remarkable as that at home, Beginning with a single teacher, there are an opening of uh, 800 teachers, 140 physicians, 380 evangelists, 79 trained nurses, 
5,783 Bible women and native helpers, among them 2,100 schools uh, that have been started by women on the field. There are 75 hospitals, uh, and it, it just continues and continues and continues the work that women have done on the field. Overseas missions attracted women for a variety of reasons, but one of the most obvious was that there were few opportunities for women to serve in vocational ministry in the homeland. Meaning, there was very few opportunities for women to serve in the church. So, in response to that, they went overseas. Ministry was considered a male profession. Some 19, by, by 19th century women, such as Catherine Booth, broke into this male-dominated realm, but not without opposition. Uh, wrote Bruth, um, herself a Bible scholar, oh, that ministers of religion would search the original records of God's word in order to discover whether God really intended women to bury her gifts and talents as she now does. Other women simply entered scholar, scholar, uh, scholar work like Florence Nightingale, who felt called to the ministry, but there were no opportunities, so she became a nurse during the war. She said, I would have given my, my head, my hand, my heart to the church, but she would not have them. To the foreign field, far away from the inner sanctums of the church hierarchy, became an outlet for women who desired to serve God. And so there was no opportunities in the church, so they just went overseas and started schools and hospitals and shared the gospel with many. Lottie Moon, who is famous, she was our, our, one of the great Southern Baptist missionaries. She was assigned to China, and she really struggled with her role in China because she honestly was a scholar. She almost married a scholar, and she was not one to be so content with just doing women's work, as she says. She says the title donated to philosophy that shaped her ministry and her world. First was the missionary strategy known as women's mission to women. Second was the staunchly defended prohibition against women seeming to teach, preach, or exercise authority over men. She says, can we wonder at the marital weariness and disgust, the sense of wasted powers and the conviction that her life is a failure that comes over a woman when instead of the ever-broadening activities she had planned, she finds herself tied down to the petty work of teaching a few girls. What women want who come to China, she insisted, is free opportunity to do the largest possible work. What women have a right to demand is perfect equality. This is Lottie Moon in the 1860s, she's saying this. What a, what a, what a, she was a very fiery woman. And, and she, she held to her convictions, and she was not scared to tell whomever what she thought or felt. She said, simple justice demands that women should have equal rights with men in mission meetings and in the conduct of their work. She wrote to the home board criticizing Crawford, her kind of director, and his new plan of operation, including the closing of schools and the regulation of mission salaries, included with terse comments, if that be freedom, give me slavery, she says. She said, I should be given the opportunity to do what God called me to do. I don't need some this man in Crawford to tell me what my worth is. God has demanded my worth and has called me to ministry. She says, she says it's odd that a million Baptists of the South can furnish only three men for all of China. Odd that with 500 preachers in the state of Virginia, we must rely on a Presbyterian to fill a Baptist pulpit. I wonder how these things look in heaven. They certainly look very queer in China. She said, there's all these men in Virginia preaching at their pulpits. Why aren't they here in China where the pulpits are left empty? She called out men for their cowardlessness. She did not, she wasn't scared of anything. And it shows that the Bible in this, this particular passage, especially that God has a plan and a calling for his work to use women. 
Even, even Lottie Moon, she started this center in Pingtu in China, and it became this massive evangelism center where thousands upon thousands came to know Christ. She trained missionaries there in this particular part of China. She says, what I hope to see is a band of ardent, enthusiastic, and experienced Christian women occupying a line of stations extending from Pingtu on the north and from Qingchong on the south, making a succession of stations uniting the two. A mighty wave of enthusiasm for women's work for women must be stirred. So she trained missionaries. She wanted to train other women to be missionaries on the field to reach the loss in China. And that included men. You know, she was called to share the gospel with whomever would hear and listen and believe. And she was dedicated on training people. She actually, during her time when there was a a great uh, disease and famine in China, she lost all of her money by trying to care and help those in need. And she was just a wonderful woman. So I want to talk about... Jesus' ministry, because it wasn't just 12 disciples. As we see in this passage, there were far more people accompanying him in his ministry. It didn't didn't start and end just with these 12 disciples that he called in Luke chapter 6. So I'm going to talk about the scope of Jesus' ministry. Um, Kind of the main idea of the passage, in the kingdom of God, men and women work together like in the garden to multiply and expand the kingdom to the end of the earth. (coughs) The title is, and he created them male and female. So the scope of Jesus' ministry, Luke is so helpful with this because he's always balancing the two. Every time you see a man being profiled, almost immediately there's a woman profiled. Like in the beginning of Luke, you see Zechariah, right? The angel goes to Zechariah and promises that he will have a son and his name will be John. What happens a few chapters later? The angel goes and visits Mary, See this parallelism? You have Zechariah being visited by an angel and being promised a son. Then you have Mary being visited by an angel and being promised a son. Um, so the, the scope of Jesus' ministry included far more than just men, and it's being profiled a lot in the book of Luke. So talking about the scope of Jesus' ministry, we see in the first verse here in verse chapter of chapter 8 verse 1 that he went on so basically he was in the, in the prior story with with the the woman the sinner the woman the 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 sinner the woman who was a sinner and his interaction with her in the house of Simon the Pharisee after he uh, Jesus had dinner with this man and after he was worshiped by this woman he went on he didn't stay there he didn't linger there he moved on. This was very common of Jesus. He would go into a town. He would go into a village. He would heal. He would teach. He would preach. And then he would move on to a different city. He says in Luke 4, 3, 43 through 44, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was not sent just to stay in one city, one town, and preach the gospel, you know, pastor a church, pastor a synagogue. He was sent to go from town to town. In chapter 5, verse 1, we see that he called his first disciples. So not only is it Jesus' solo work, he's not working in isolation. He's actually preaching the kingdom of God, healing, and then also gathering disciples. He called men who would follow him so that he may spread the good news of the kingdom to a wide audience. You see, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just preach to a large crowd of people 
do his healings, and that's really his ministry. He has that part of his ministry, but he's also raising up, training future leaders of his ministry. Or why else would he call them disciples? Why else would he call men to follow him, like we see in chapter 5? What does he say to the, uh, the men in the boat, so James and John and Peter and Andrew? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching me. Or catching men, I'm sorry. You'll be catching men. So he, he, he pulls them out of their profession and their vocation and then sends them and prepares them to be sent to continue his ministry. Jesus was not sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to every person on the planet. He brought the kingdom of God to earth. He enacted entrance into his kingdom through his blood, through his death. No man comes to the Father except through me, he says in John 14. But who was give, going to spread the truth of the kingdom to every city and village? Jesus' purpose was to come preach the, the kingdom of God, die, raise from the dead, but also raise up leaders to then take that ministry, to take that truth, take that good news and gospel to the world. Jesus wasn't going to go to every city. He did not come to Evansville. He didn't go to New York City. Jesus called out disciples who he trained and then sent out. Jesus, who is fully man, is constrained by time and space. He must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Due to the finite nature of human flesh, he cannot preach in one town at the same time, preach in a different village. He cannot multiply himself into copies of himself. The divinity of Jesus could do that. However, God has chosen to reveal himself in flesh and has chosen to indwell his people, his church, to bring the message of the kingdom to every city and village. The expansion of the kingdom of God through the indwelling of the spirit and people who have been transformed by the Christ Jesus. So the scope of his ministry does not change even after he dies, even after he raises from the dead, even after he ascends into heaven. The scope of his ministry stays the same, which is to go to every city and village. Luke 9, 1 through 6. Jesus is, in this particular passage, he's saying he's going to town and village. He's pro proclaiming and bringing and preaching the kingdom of God. And then who are with him? The 12 disciples and then these, these women that he mentions. He's called these people. He gave them power and authority to then send out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everyone. This is in Luke chapter 9. So the next chapter over, this, this passage is kind of a transitional passage to show us that what's about to happen is, is that these people, this company of people following Jesus, are now going to be watching him do certain things, watching him heal, and then doing that same work when he sends them out in Luke chapter 9. He's preparing his followers to continue the work he initiated through cities and villages. Luke uses this phrasing, he went on to different cities and villages throughout his writings. Luke 13, 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying to, toward Jerusalem. Acts 13, 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Papos, they came upon. Acts 17, 1. Then when they had passed through uh, Olympia and they came to Thessalonica. So, so Luke uses this, this formula, this, 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 this writing very often saying that they would go into certain cities and villages. They would move on through those places and go to other cities and villages. We see this in the ministry of Paul. 
So Paul's method was to travel from city to city preaching the gospel in synagogues. So Paul, what Paul would do is very similar to what Jesus would do. He would go into a city, he would proclaim the gospel, he wouldn't linger there for very long, and then he would go on to a new city. The thought process of Paul, that he would go to a major city and then preach the gospel, some would come to know Christ, a church would be started, and the hope and the goal was that those people would take the gospel to the surrounding villages outside those cities. Would it be impractical for Paul to go to every city and village in a particular area? He wouldn't get past a certain area. His ministry would never expand the way that it needed to expand. And so his method was to go into particular cities, preach the gospel, there would be conversion, a church would be started, and then that gospel would go to the surrounding areas. There's a, uh, I was told about this from a friend, I don't, we don't have it in Evansville, but there's this, this new like uh, movement of men who um, work out, not in a gym, but they work out like in parks and stuff, and kind of, it's called F3. And, um, they, these, and it's always led by a new leader in the community or groups. And these, these workout groups, these workout groups of men, actually it's not just men, it's men and women. It's, 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 even, you can even bring your own kids. And so the, the thought process is, is that a new, uh, a new community of men who, and women who work out together would just, would just would birth another one. As, as this new identity is started, as this new method of working out together is kind of learned and trained, that someone else would start a new ministry, a new group uh, to a, in a different city or a different area. And so it would start off in these major cities, and the hope was that as people were trained, the new communities would be started in other cities and other villages. And this is basically what Jesus' method was. He would go into these cities, he would preach the gospel, he would see people come to faith, and that those people would spread that message after he leaves. And this is kind of the scope of Jesus' ministry, that he would go through these cities and villages and he would initiate the gospel there and then go on to a new city or place. The second point is the content of Jesus' ministry. So you have the scope, now the content. So he goes from city to city doing what? He is proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So the focus of his ministry is the kingdom of God. There's so many things that Jesus does not say at all, right? That doesn't teach at all. There's a lot of things that some would like for Jesus to have said, but he did not say. He came and focused his ministry on proclaiming the kingdom of God. He did not talk about political issues, per se. He didn't come to talk about how bad the Romans were, how bad the Jewish hierarchy was. He only talked about the kingdom of God. You have the Son of God, the one who created all things, and he didn't talk about science. Right? That would have been refreshing, right? If God would have talked about, well, this is how I created the universe. Every detail was explained. But Jesus does not talk about that. He doesn't teach about how creation came into being. He doesn't preach on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He doesn't talk about scientific issues. You know, he created all things. All things were created through him. He doesn't talk about scientific issues. He doesn't talk about self-help strategies, right? He doesn't talk about how to, like, you know, become debt-free, he doesn't talk about how to, how to how to live a healthy, balanced lifestyle. He doesn't talk about parenting. He doesn't talk about marriage. He talks about marriage a little bit, but he doesn't tell you how you should be a good husband and a good wife. He talks about the kingdom of God, and he proclaims that kingdom. He talks, and he talks about it quite extensively, starting in Luke 4, 4, 43, and then ongoing, he speaks about the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? 
The kingdom of God is the sphere of salvation. So he preaches, he heralds this good news, he announces coming of a new age, is persuading people to hear and understand and believe the kingdom of God. That was the focus of his ministry. That was the focus of his teaching. Colossians 1.13, the kingdom of his beloved son whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And in that kingdom, we have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is the kingdom of God, the sphere of salvation. You are outside the kingdom. You're in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of sin. You're in the kingdom of death. And you've been transformed in the kingdom of life, in the kingdom of God. That's what he preaches. He preaches the repentance and faith. You get access to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is then manifested in your life through your love of God and the care, your character that reflects God and it manifests the things of God. When you care about the things of God, when you express the love of God, when you express the character of God, it reflects your presence in the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 60 through 61, I follow you. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus replied, no one after putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so grand, it is so great, that you would never go, well, I got, other, I got some errands to do, and then when I'm done with my errand, then I will then take possession of the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in the field. From joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of God is the great prize. It is the better prize. Uh, we, there's a, there's a, a man named Gary Hagan who's the president and CEO of International Justice Missions. And he says, uh, this is a quote from him, after we have poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, after we have provided them with a great education, discipline, uh, structure, and love, after we have worked so hard to provide every good thing, they turn to us and ask, why have you given all this to me? And the answer, the honest answer for me is, so you'll be safe. And my kids look at me and say, really, that's it? You want me to be safe? Your grand ambition of, for my life is that nothing bad happens? And I think something inside them dies. They either go away to perish in safety or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure and their yearning for a larger glory. Who says the kingdom of God is at hand, but all that life is about is for you to be safe? All that life is about is that you would be comfortable in all that you have. I mean, what a, what a lie. We tell our children that, too. All that we want for you is comfort and safety. That, but Christ came to bring the kingdom of God. And he even says that a man who finds the kingdom of God sells all that he has and buys the field because the field has the great prize. The, therefore, investing all that you have is not the safe maneuver. It's not the financial decision that is wise, per se. But he sells it all because the prize is in the field. The prize is in the field. That's why the kingdom of God is so important. The kingdom of freedom, not the kingdom of safety. The kingdom of God is the great prize. And that's why Christ was so focused on that ministry. He didn't talk about other things because the kingdom of God is the great prize. A man who, and a woman who has the kingdom of God has everything. So why talk about anything else? The, the third point is the means of Jesus' ministry, or kind of the workers of Jesus' ministry. And I want to kind of get to the, the heart of this passage. So we see that the 12 disciples were with him. We see in Luke 6, 12 through 16, that he has... Um, 
called these disciples. He has risen. He's called out these 12 men to be his disciples. The, the funny thing about that is right after chapter 6, 12 through 16, the disciples aren't mentioned again until this passage. So what did they do from 6, 12 through 16 to 8, 1 through 3? We have no idea. They are not mentioned. But yet now we get to this point that they were with him. They were with him in his further work. And they were with him all the way until he is, he is arrested in the garden. Now we are told they are with Jesus in the episodes to follow. They're there to observe, listen, learn. And Jesus had not yet sent them out until chapter 9. They're being groomed to lead the church after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. To be the image of Christ in the world. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to the another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. They are there to observe, to listen, to learn, to be conformed into the image of Christ so that when they're sent, they are like Christ in the places that they're sent. For these guys will not be successful alone, expanding the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. It's so interesting here that, that Luke says, and there were some women with them. He even says what they, who they are. He says it's Mary Magdalene, uh, for whom seven demons. So they, these women had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Even one of the women, Joanne, is actually a wife of a, uh, someone who is in high position in Herod's court. So you have, you have women that had seven spirits that were maybe poorer, and then you had richer women. So you had me, women with means and women who didn't have means that were following Jesus. And it says other, many others followed him. So you get these 12 men were with him, and then you have these women were also with him. What are we supposed to gather from this? What are we supposed to learn from this? And the, I think the point is here is that these disciples on their own would not, been this, would not be successful in what Christ plan was for his church. These gods will not be successful alone expanding the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Matthew 18, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This commission is not just to the men. It's to the women as well. Because these men on their own without the help of the women would have failed. As Adam would have failed to work and keep the land by himself. What does God say in Genesis chapter 1? He says, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to do it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. But then we get to chapter 2, that God placed the man in the garden that he specifically made for him. That all was actually good. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. He says, it's not good. The only time before sin that God says something is not good and man alone is not good. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I shall make him a helper fit for him. The commission in Genesis 1.29 would have been unfulfilled without the completion of God's creation of his image bearers. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Without Eve, Adam would have failed to multiply and fill the earth. So would these disciples have failed without the help of the women that God had transformed and saved as well to accompany him and to learn and to be trained in ministry. At this point in Genesis, uh, the, the, 
Adam was unable to work and keep the land without his helper. The woman was created by God to be his equal helper, a co-laborer in God's kingdom in the garden to work and keep the land, to expand the knowledge of God as the water covers the sea. So Christ prepares his disciples to continue his work in proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God to towns and villages. It is not good for him to prepare this, these 12 men alone. He also prepares some women. They had been healed of evil spirits and diseases. For a rabbi to have women in his company would have been unprecedented. I mean, the idea that a rabbi in the first century would have women in his company of people would have been scandalous. Why would he have women with him? What good are women? What are they going to do? It's based on the attitude of that time. But again, like I said in the beginning, Luke is always showing us that God's plan was to reveal his son, not just to men, but also to women. We saw Zachariah and Mary, Simeon and Anna, right? Simeon, the priest, they take Jesus to, be, uh, to take him to the temple. But then what happens immediately after that? He goes and sees Anna, who's been waiting for the, kingdom of the, for the, the son of God to come. The woman of Zephiath and Naaman, and when Jesus is talking in, in chapter 4, man with an unclean demon, and then Peter's mother-in-law follows immediately after that when it comes to the healing story. Then you have the centurion servant in chapter 7. Then what happens immediately after that story? The widow's son. The sinful woman is forgiven in the story before this. The man with the sheep and the woman with the coins in Luke chapter 15. The widow who gave all that she had. But then what else? The tax collector? So there's this balance throughout the book of Luke, this gospel, is to show that men and women were transformed by the work of Christ. And not only were they both transformed, but God used them. Christ trained them both to express and proclaim the kingdom of God was at hand. It's so interesting that in the life of Christ, who was at the cross? The women. Who was at the burial? Women. Who were at the tomb? The women. Where were the disciples? They had run scared. But who was there to prepare his body for burial and actually went back to, get to, to prepare his, his body for burial in the tomb? And then they saw the tomb was empty, but women. The women announced his resurrection in 2410. The 12 are absent. Lord report, Luke reports the prominent position of women in the story of Christ. Women and men were transformed by Christ, healed by evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, Joanne, Suzanne, and many others. God, Christ used in his ministry. He provided for them out of their, they provided for them out of, out of their means. That out of love and gratitude, they imitated the sacrificial loving grace he bestowed on them. That doesn't say any men provided any money to them. It says these women provided money out of their means. They expressed their gratitude and love to Christ through giving. Giving is worship. We see this here. These women are important to Jesus. We, all, we know also that Mary and Martha were both extremely important to him. He cries when he didn't go and help them as soon as they had liked. Jesus surrounded himself with people that he transformed. He then taught and trained them to continue his work to proclaim and announce and preach the coming of the kingdom of God. This in group included men and women, not just men. Which made Jesus socially unacceptable at that time to bring women into his ministry, to not only interact with them, to actually bring them into his team would have been something that had been frowned upon. Socially unacceptable. 
how to surround yourself with people that may not be advantageous to your status or plan. Jesus teaches this. You know, it wasn't advantageous to the people around Jesus to have women in his company. And sometimes we think the same way. Well, will this person bring advantage to my life? What do I gain? What do I benefit from this person being in my friendship group? Think about high school, college, people at work, neighbors. Are there people that you should be friends with but aren't because you don't think that they bring any advantage to your life or bring any benefit to your life? That actually, if I was friend for them, it actually would do harm to me because people would look down upon me because I'm friends with them. The church would fail to achieve its vision without women. I think... Jesus exposes us to this idea. You, the church is un, is, 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 will fail to achieve its vision to glorify God and to expand the knowledge of God around the world without women. That is a fact. It is true. And for too often, the church has not utilized women, and that is to its detriment and to its doom. So I want to present kind of a theological vision for women's ministry. And realize when I say this, I don't think Redeemer has done this well or great. I think in a lot of ways we have failed. Um, Even though when we first started this church, before we even had our first service, the first thing that we added to our website was women in the church. We wrote a paper on what we think, whether women should be celebrated in our church. And I don't think necessarily we have been great at that. Because to be honest, this is not an excuse. We don't have a great lot of models of what it looks like for women to be celebrated in the church. And that's a shame that we don't have a lot of models. And, and so the, 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 the goal here and the vision here is that we would set a model for other churches to follow and what it looks like to have a faithful and word-centered women's ministry that is promoting and celebrating women in the use of women's gifts in the church. I mean, that, that, again, we're not perfect, and we need to pray how we do that well. And women, look, I'm one of the three elders here at this church. I need... We need your help. We are men and therefore aren't all-knowing. All we don't know all things. We don't see all things. Therefore, we need your advice. We need your counsel. We need your wis- words of wisdom to help lead the church when it comes to ministering to women. And too often, and I have called out other pastors on this, we have said, well, I'm uncomfortable talking to women and you're not my wife, so therefore I'm going to just ignore you. That is not the right way of pastoring. But help us. So, so kind of a theological vision here. Number one, like obvious, but you have to state it, we're all created in the image of God, right? We're all created in the image of God. He didn't create man in the image of God and didn't create women in some sub-image. He created us both in the image of God. Therefore, we are both equal in the eyes of God. The covenantal purpose of multiplying and be fruitful to the nations to, to spread the knowledge of God was given to male and females. The great commission in Matthew 18 was given to male and females. Women, you are called to make disciples of all nations. That's just not a man-only job. We are all to fulfill that commission. We have a common creation We have been both redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we have a common mission. So we have a common creation, a common redemption, and a common mission. Therefore, we are all together on glorifying God together. And our vision as a church is in a male vision and in a female vision. Our male vision, our female vision, our common vision is to make disciples of all nations, to bring the gospel of Christ to the nations. 
but we've all been gifted differently. Therefore, we've all been gifted. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 20 says that all of those who have been redeemed by Christ, who have been dwelt with the Holy Spirit, that includes men and women, have been given gifts from the Spirit. We all have spiritual gifts. It's not like, well, there's male gifts, and then there's like women's gifts, but they're not the same, really. We've all been given this gifts by God. And they both are to be used in community and to build up the church. So the gifts that you have, regardless if you're male or female, is to build up the church, to use to love your brothers and sisters. That gifting could be teaching, evangelism, leadership, mercy, generosity, service. Any of these giftings ought to be used to build up the church. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female, you are to use those gifts to build up the church. And the, the, the importance of that, you are capable and you should be eager to use these giftings to build up the church. And that the church's rich resource is its people, males and females, their gifts in the church. That is the rate great resource. We tend to fail to think that property and facilities and money is the great resource. It is not the great resource. The people in the church is the great resource. So therefore, you are welcome here. I don't care if you're a male or a female. If you've been saved by the blood of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been dwelt with the Holy Spirit, therefore, I want you to use those giftings in the church to build it up. I don't care if you're a male or female to build up the church to be eager to do so. We have a common goal, which is to glorify our God and Father. We are fellow partners in that mission to demonstrate to the world, to, to show the world that, that followers of Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ, equal in Christ, as we love one another, as we use our giftings to build each other up, it's a picture of the gospel to the world. That the unworthy which includes all of us, and the diversity of us all are equal in Christ. Women's ministry into the life of church, that women, uh, that we have a shared commitment to God's word. I, I have this thought, and, and, and this is a, um, just kind of over the years, that what ends up happening in Bible studies is, is that women care about fellowship and men care about study. You get men and women in a Bible study. Men only want to talk about is uh, theological ideas and philosophy, and the women, all they want to do is fellowship. I don't think that's actually true. I think women have a lot to say, but they don't say anything for whatever reason. Maybe they don't feel comfortable speaking in the church because they've been told for so long that you're not supposed to speak. You are supposed to speak in the church. You are supposed to speak in Bible study. You're supposed to express what God is doing on your life because we all are students of the word. We're all supposed to grow in the word of God. We're all supposed to be of sound doctrine, and we all are supposed to study the Bible. And too often, women's ministries aren't Bible-centered. They're fellowship-centered, and that is a problem. The word of God should be center in our women's ministry, which it is at this church, and it needs to continue to be that way. Titus 2, 3 through 5, there needs to be this growth uh, as one body, as we grow, uh, to, as they grow together, that they that they sh- they, they teach one another uh, lives that are changed in community. That more women learn to speak and teach the word, and teach one another to rely on His word through actual growth in God's word. That there be mutual growth in God's word, so that you who are older women in this room and older women in this room is like you're in your twenties. If you would speak to those who are younger, and teach them the word of God, 
that authentic ministry would happen, that there'd be uh, coming together by God's grace, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you worship God together, you build up one another, and you share the love of Christ to the world. You encourage evangelism, you bring other women into your communities, that you bring other women into your Bible studies, that you, those who are working with you or in neighborhoods with you, that you bring them to uh, come and fellowship and to learn about God's word that they see the inviting community of God's sisters and that they, that they see the loving community and that they see the enthusiasm for the gospel. And as men, we need to affirm this in our women. We need to say and encourage them to love God's word, to learn and study God's word, to be more evangelistic, to share the gospel with those at work. It's not just something that, well, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to encourage my sisters to get in the word. I'm not going to encourage them to be about the gospel and proclaim the gospel. We should affirm them and encourage them to share the gospel. I'm going to end with this. Some of the women at USI probably know this, but your school is full of women. I mean, there's women everywhere at USI. I'll sit at Starbucks, and all I'll see is women in the line to Starbucks. It's like, where are the men here? And for our church, give me a prayer request. Our church, we have three elders. Uh, Robert is a paid staff. He does worship. And that's it. We have no women on our staff. And that's actually not, we would prefer to have a woman on our staff. We wanted to hire a woman to disciple women at USI and disciple women at this church. And we were unable to hire anybody. That is the desire of our church because we see the need. We see the need of women being encouraged to learn God's word, to be disciple, and for evangelism to other women. So I'm going to present a prayer request. I'm going to pray that God would send a woman to be a part of our staff that whose ministry here is to disciple women and to share the gospel and prepare women to share the gospel because that we, we want to see God raise up women in this church and send them to the nations. We want women in this church to be on fire for God's word, to become teachers of God's word, that, we, that other women in this church would, be just, would enjoy teaching the word of God so that women would love God's word, so we would have a similar ministry that we have here with Jesus in 8, 1 through 3, that it would be men and women proclaiming the kingdom of God to the nations. Let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.